Hi, and welcome back to another episode of Livewire's Rules of Investing. I'm Patrick Polk, but today I won't be your host. Instead, Livewire co-founder and executive director, James Marley, will be hosting today's episode. Over the coming weeks and months, you can expect to hear more from Livewire's other editorial staff. I love being your host, but I keep getting requests for more podcasts, and I want to find ways to bring you that extra content. We've got some great interviews coming up for you, including a discussion between our own Ali Selby and legendary US fund manager, Jim Chanos. For today's episode, James speaks with Andrew Clifford, CEO and co-chief investment officer of Platinum Asset Management. He explains why he's betting against US tech stocks, why interest rates are set to rise and what that means for different areas of the market, and how Platinum are playing this trend. If you're an Apple Podcasts or Spotify user, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so that you don't miss an episode. Or if you're a Livewire subscriber, hit the follow button at the bottom of the wire to be notified whenever I post content. Not a Livewire subscriber yet? Just head on over to livewiremarkets.com. It's free, easy to register, and you'll get access to insights from the leading investment minds in the country. Well, that's it for now. I hope you enjoy the show. Hi there, Livewire readers and viewers. It's James Marley here, co-founder of Livewire Markets, and I'm really excited about the interview that I'm about to let you in on today. I'm joined by Andrew Clifford, who's the CEO and, and CIO at Platinum Asset Management. Now, it's been nearly three and a half years since I last spoke with Andrew. A lot's changed in that time. One thing that hasn't changed is my suit, which is a bit embarrassing, but it didn't get much use during lockdown. But we're going to be talking with Andrew today about uh, the, the bigger market backdrop, what's been happening in US tech stocks, and particularly why Platinum has got a short exposure in that part of the market. And we're also going to test his thesis on a long-held view that China represents one of the best opportunities of a lifetime. So, Andrew, great to see you again. Uh, yeah. Welcome back yep. to the studio and good to see you. Good to be here, James. All righty. Well, listen, I've given people a bit of a flavour around what we're going to talk about today. Um, and I'm going to draw on some comments from a report uh, that you put out to your investors. And you talked about the idea that risks in markets were asymmetric as we entered 2022. So my question to you is, what are some quantifiable examples that have led you to that conclusion? Yeah, so uh, there's one variable that just matters more than any other in uh, stock markets, and that's interest rates. Um, And if you want to think about it, it's pretty hard for rates to go down. The central banks have been telling us for the last year that rate rises are far in the distance, you know, 2024, 2025, and then it's 2023. And now we're faced with the, the reality that rates are not going to go up this year and starting soon. You know, in the US, we're talking about from the, you know, if you look at the, the broker sort of strategists, we're talking about as many as seven or eight rate hikes this year. So potentially 2% type rates. So, you know, this is a, a fundamental change to the environment we've been in. Um, and, you know, it, we, we saw at the end of 2018 that um, particularly the sort of more highly valued end of the market doesn't react well with, with rate hikes. So it's, that's the sort of the most obvious thing. In terms of really trying to quantify it, I think you just, there are a lot of things out there in terms of whether it's um, valuations, uh, retail activity in the market, 
that are all classic indicators that we've had a pretty good bull market here uh, and that um, combined with those those rate hikes I think you know we're on the uh, on the verge of a uh, of a very different environment uh, for at least the you know foreseeable future if we hark back to 2018 there was a backflip on the, the tightening cycle do you think that there's a case where central banks get the, get the wobbles again well it's quite different this time and inflation there was ticking up a little bit can't remember exactly what the number it was two percent maybe um markets labor markets may be a little tight you know we're talking about you know inflation at seven percent we're talking about you know the tightest labor markets we've seen you know the rough numbers are again in the u.s you know 10 million jobs are out there seven million people looking for a job um wages accelerating and the thing about inflation is that because we haven't really lived this now for a long time is that it does need to be dealt with because if from nothing else from a political point of view it's very damaging to governments because simply the impact on you know affordability of the household budget becomes a very big deal and we're already seeing that we're already seeing um you know and the us again best example of where you know you have the white house saying we we need to to crunch inflation so i think we're in for a you know, given the level of inflation, given the level of momentum in the economy, I, I don't think, as we had back then, you know, asset markets were falling, we get the Fed put, as it's, you know, it may be there, but I think we're a long, long way away from that. So, but the alternative, you know, you asked me the alternative scenario, and the alternative scenario is this, is that consumer confidence as a, com as a result of, you know, uh, COVID, and as a result of um, inflation, is at very low levels so if you were looking for another uh scenario it is actually that we're on the precipice of a big consumer retrenchment uh in which case maybe those inflationary pressures recede more quickly than expected mm. and and rates don't turn out to be quite the the concern that i have yeah. in january um the platinum portfolio enjoyed a a, a really strong you know, lift and, 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 and strong outperformance against the benchmark. And in your commentary, you questioned if it could be a sneak peek for what the rest of 2022 might hold and, and be a regime change for markets. So what do you mean by a regime change and, and what needs to happen for this to play out? Yeah, so we've had 40 years of falling inflation and 40 years of falling interest rates. Now, of course, over that period, there have been periods of rate hike cycles. Um, and I think, you know, when you go back and, you know, look at the way inflation takes hold, uh, once it takes hold, it's not easy to get rid of. So at the moment, there's a lot of analysis out there about is it transitory? Is it, well, you know, what is it just going to go away because markets, you know, supply chain issues go away and whatever. And I think that that sort of, it's all a bit backward looking. Supply chains, they will get sorted out. Individual things that are in short supply will be delivered and price pressures there will ease off. But some prices don't come back. Wages um, is the most notable one. So all of this stuff gets baked in into inflation. But if you look forward and think of yourself as a business person, I've had struggles getting supplies. When I get them, the prices are going up. They're squeezing my margins. I can borrow money very cheaply. What are you going to do? You're going to borrow 
and get those additional inventories or supplies in. I'm just using an example. Or maybe you're going to bring forward that plant, new piece of plant and equipment before the suppliers put prices up. For an individual, it might be better get our foot on our new home, get a car before price hikes come through. And this is, this is what becomes the perpetual inflation machine where everyone Starts feeding it, on itself. is feeding on itself. Or even if you've just got cash, I'd better go and stock up the trolley this week with some more toilet paper before the price rise comes through. And, and so it's really a question of how this year unfolds. Is that, that psychology, it's a psychology of inflation, is that taking hold? And it can take hold because the cost of money is so low. I can, I can actually you know, borrow a bit of money and get in front of those price rises. That's why, why rates ultimately you know, potentially need to go up. And it just becomes a, a never-ending cycle. So you could end up in a period here where inflation becomes not just persistent in the next year or two, but as we saw in the 70s, it took a very long period of time for central banks to get uh, on top of it. And it required, I'm not suggesting we're going to end up with the sort of 20% rates of 1980 or whatever, but we could have much higher interest rates and completely break away from the sort of near zero interest rate environment we've been in. So that's the potential regime change. And it's important for equity markets because that has been a tailwind for equities for a long time and particularly for the last decade of uh, ever higher valuations on the growth and defensive companies. In your words, um, you know, again, I'm, I'm quoting from a report. You said that in January, investors got a, a glimpse of, of what happens when perfection gets questioned, and, and you're referring to, to technology stocks. Um, you know, rough numbers, the Nasdaq's down about 13% from its high towards the back end of 2021, but it's still up, you know, 700% over the past decade. Um, I note that Platinum has a short exposure in US tech. What are some of the frailties that you think are being exposed? Yeah, well, it's a great question, James, because what I would say is that every bull market that has ever been in history has two things in common with it. One, it has a great story, uh, and that great story is predominantly a true story. It's not like just a made-up one, it's real. Uh, and it has easy monetary conditions, lots of uh, credit available, low interest rates. These are the things that bull markets are built on. And they die, firstly, normally with uh, the, the sort of loss of that liquidity and, lower, and higher interest rates. But the other thing is, is that happens and people start looking more closely at the businesses they own. And they start to see that maybe not all is perfection because all of those cognitive biases we at Platinum talk about is that the, the stock price itself is a reinforcing. If the stock price has gone up, then it must be good. And it is good, but it may not be, you know, the more the stock price goes up, the more beautiful the, you know, the, the company becomes. So you know, we start to see some really interesting things coming through in results in recent times. And so, uh, you know, two comp I'll give three examples here. So one, uh, Meta or Facebook, you know, actually their results were great, right? They actually were, you know, I mean, if you just said, here's a company, these are the numbers they produce, are they good? You go, oh, pretty fantastic, you know. But they start to speak about issues they have in their business. One with the, the changes with Apple uh, and their uh, access to data there for targeting their advertising. And the other one is the rise of uh, TikTok uh, as another social media platform that's getting a lot of eyeballs. Um, 
And so immediately in this environment where we start to question, we go, bang, you know, the stocks, you know, has, has a massive fall. Um, and it's an interesting one as well because, you know, we've seen actually that play out, by the way, in China, just as an aside, where when um, uh, ByteDance or uh, doing the, the TikTok, same owner, uh, had huge success in China, Weibo, uh, you know, their advertising revenues went from growing at 75% <laughs> at the start of the year to being not growing at all. When the they dollar followed the eyeballs. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so it's interesting. You know, Netflix, it's a, it's a bit more dull. You know, you've got, but, but there's a lot of, comp all of a sudden where all of the competition that's there, it's been there the whole time. Um, but now we start to fear that and fear the sort of loss of subscriber growth. But there's another interesting one that doesn't get, it had a, a different reaction, but which I think actually was the company that had a really poor result, which was Amazon, mm. right? So Amazon's really, they've got two businesses. We know obviously e-commerce and Amazon Web Services. Now the Amazon Web Services, AWS, great business, great result. Another 30% plus year, high returns on capital, amazing. The e-commerce business over the last three years has doubled revenues, amazing but their profits are flat. So their profitability is half. Well, people say, oh, but what about the advertising business that you know, is now part of Amazon? What about uh, you know, Amazon Prime and all the subscriber growth and that? Yeah, yeah, there's 60 odd billion dollars of revenue there. Hasn't helped them one bit in e-commerce. So here's a company that uh, has really, if, you would, if I just put those numbers in front of you and said, here's a company double revenues, profits are flat, you'd be going, well, there's something very wrong here. I'm very uncomfortable. Now, the story can go either way. I'm not saying it is a big problem. Maybe that will turn around here. Um, but it's not really a picture you'd normally associate with a great deal of enthusiasm. So mm. yes, all of a sudden we can look at things a, a little differently. Yet Amazon, because they put up prices on their uh, the Amazon Prime, it's a three billion lift on a $7 billion profit for the e-commerce if you, nothing else happens, uh, which is unlikely given what's happening with inflation, that's great. But yeah, so all of a sudden, lots of questioning of the story will, will happen when stock prices start to fall. Some of the companies that you've mentioned there, uh, you know, they, whether the result was, was good, bad, or you know, not so good, they are very established and, and, and great businesses, their household names. So, I guess, you know, I guess the question has two parts. Um, first one being, you know, can't, can this just be a bump in the road rather than, you know, a turning point for some of these businesses? And I guess the second point is, is really around how you at Platinum are ac uh, accessing the, these frailties and perfection. Yeah. Well, of course, you know, this is the opportunity now and this is why as an investor that through any point in the cycle, you really want to have some cash because there are opportunities that are going to come up. Um, so, you know, you'd expect us to be looking very carefully at some of the names that are being, you know, uh, hit here. Um, of, of those three, you know, um, we still have a, a small investment in some of our funds in Facebook. Um, um, so we're very interested in that. Uh, uh, no strong conclusion here. I mean, the, the story, I think, around... TikTok could be quite a problem for them. But in some of the smaller names, uh, there, there are things that are being thrown out and um, you know, there, there'll be plenty of work, well, there is plenty of work going on looking at you know, what potential opportunities come out of that. And what about on the short side? 
Yeah, well, on the short side, you know, I think, um, you know, there have been great opportunities that, that we've taken advantage of here in some of these very highly valued stocks. So, you know, um, I'm sort of talking about some of the really excited, um, you know, concept stocks uh, in EVs or clean energy or in tech. I mean, there's many, many of them that were trading at valuations of 30, 40 times revenue if they had revenue at all. And so, you know, we're, some of them are already down 70%, so 50 to 70%. So a lot of those opportunities, some, many of that, those will still fade um, and still be reasonable shorts. But, you know, I think the next thing is there are still a lot of really uh, highly valued stocks um, in, in tech. Also, people don't focus on this so much, but in Europe, a lot of the high valuation has been in some of the, you know, very um, uh, more steady growth stocks. So for uh, well-known ones would be the, the luxury goods companies out of Europe, which are, are lovely companies, but have seen their valuations go from, you know, in the 30 times type multiples of earnings to 70. And now they've come down as well, but, you know, there's they're still shorts there. And I think there are still shorts, uh, you know, broadly in the market, just because while we're worrying about interest rates going up, and we're worried about the potential loss of liquidity. Nothing's actually happened yet. Actually, you know, liquidity is still pretty good. Yeah, we're watching it, waiting for yes. it. The slow moving train. <laughs> well, let's move on from, um, you know, an, an area that it sounds like you think has been and, and in a lot of uh, places still is priced for perfection mm. to a part of the market that I think is, is, <laughs> is could be about as far from perfection as you'd want to get. And, um, you know, last time we spoke, you talked about um, your bullish views on China and why you yep. thought it was such a compelling long-term opportunity. Um, I note that five out of your top 10 positions give platinum exposure to China. Um, you know, so I guess given what's transpired and particularly even last year, it was a, it was a, a, a train wreck. Why are you still convinced that China represents such a compelling investment opportunity? Well, I think, you know, what we have here is a very dynamic market economy. Whatever the front page of the papers is telling you, um, you know, we have some extraordinary companies um, and we have a government that has been very, very reform focused. So I, I would put a lot of the changes that have come through in China that worry people. It's put in the context of, you know, a socialist or communist government being anti-business, um, you know, common prosperity is, you know, a theme in every political environment. It's what the Democrats are talking about in the US. I mean, we need to redistribute income. The last two years of COVID has been a great example of the benefit of, you know, redistributing income by providing benefits to, to lower income households. It's what that's all been about and, and may well be an ongoing theme. I expect it to be an ongoing theme. So in China, many of the examples that are given of them being anti-business are actually just reform, and the same reform is being looked at here. So the anti-monopoly movement, um, the crackdown on monopolistic behaviour by the likes of the big e-commerce companies, there are FTC, there are DOJ investigations going on in the US. We have our own you know, investigations here in Australia. So the beauty in China is we've... We've lived through that, we've seen the outcomes of it, and we're now on the other side of it. Um, so, you know, it is this classic thing where there's so much uncertainty. Um, 
but there are still these great businesses and they will grow again. Um, the economy has slowed down heavily. The, the, the one reform program that really you know, you know, has hit the economy is around property. Yeah. Um, and again, you know, we, we've written extensively about like there really isn't a property bubble here, but you know, the government has acted early to deal with the amount of leverage used by property developers. It's caused a problem. They're now trying to you know, move beyond that. Um, but I'd also say, you know, the thing about China is that it is this, um, it is this uncertain, more difficult environment for investors. It's not, not easy, but that becomes the opportunity. So, you know, since, since we last spoke, I think, you know, we were probably at, you know, in 23% uh, or so in China. By the time last year came around, we were down at 15%. We'd sold, you know, we'd made great money out of a lot of stocks, sold them. Uh, two of the ones that were completely out of you know, international fund rally, Barber and Tencent, you know, we're back in those ones today. So what uh, level of exposure do you have to, to China now? Uh, so we're back up around the 20% mark today. Yeah. What work do you do to be, challenge your own conviction on, on the opportunity in China? Because, you know, it's clear that you're convinced and you've come yeah. around to the view <laughs> and it's a long held view. So, you know, how do you get challenged on that view? Yes, so I think, you know, this is a problem for all investors in any of their, you know, their, their favoured ideas, whether it's a stock or a country or whatever. We all, we all face that and, you know, it's, it's, you know, that is confirmation bias where everything you see, uh, you know, you see the upside in it. And it's, you know, the thing about confirmation bias is very easy to see in other people. When I see and hear people talking about some of their beloved stocks that have taken a hit and I'm going, you're not, you're not incorporating the new news. So, you know, as a process at Platinum, um, you, know, we, you know, we have this um, process of really challenging uh, the, the idea um, that we're investing in. And so you've got the proponent of the idea, we sit around the table and, you know, the idea, the, the, the discussion around it is to try and pull that idea apart. Sometimes, you know, a particular idea. So one, you know, I've long been very comfortable with the idea of that property is not uh, uh, a, a big problem for the country. Um, but clearly with what we're going through last year, uh, you know, in the property market having its first proper setback, but, you know, not, not that significant. You know, Clay Smolinski, who's my other co-CIO, he took over that research and went from ground up um, and, and completely re-examined it and pulled it apart. And while he's comfortable with it, he's probably not as enthusiastic as me um, for the potential there in, in the stocks. But, you know, here's the interesting thing. From the middle of last year when China's reforms were uh, at their sort of the peak, and property was right in the centre of that, uh, the two property stocks that we were buying at that point have both made us good money, you know, up, you know, 30 odd percent since then. So in spite of all of the, the fears and whatever, it had been well and truly put into the stock price back then. Yeah. Well, let's get into a couple of ideas, starting at a slightly higher level. What are some of the com compelling themes that Platinum is exposed to today and why do you like them? Yeah, so we've had a, uh, um, you know, there is that China story in there and a lot of, uh, there, there are two groups there. There's the, the e-commerce stories and the, the well-known ones are 
Tencent Alibaba that we've come back to, but also Trip.com, which is their big um, uh, online travel agent. Um, and there's the property stocks and uh, Ping An Insurance, which I've you know discussed at, at length previously. So um, they're still there. But travel is another big theme because you know we I have no doubt we uh, as we move beyond uh, the pandemic this year, you know travel is going to be a huge huge. There's going to be a boom uh, in global travel, and so we have a variety of different uh, companies as a trip. Uh, in in China, but then you know we have Booking, which is the big uh, global online travel agent. We have uh, aerospace companies in India. We have um, uh, the big um, uh, Indigo Airlines, the the big you know low cost carrier there. Mm. So there's a range of those uh, semiconductors as enablers of the tech boom. You know we still are very optimistic about. It's a, it's a funny group semiconductors because when you talk about it, there are some that are in the you know, the crazy huge valuation camp and then there are others that have been left behind. And so there's some still really interesting uh, businesses there. And another another one is uh, autos. And, you know, we've been counting on autos for a while because they're clearly there's electrification, EVs happening, there's autonomous vehicles happening. But now we also have had, we had a couple of bad years for auto sales leading up to the pandemic. This has been one really hard hit by shortages. So we are going to have, I think, a, a, a significant boom in car sales. Big long cycle. Uh, because, you know, first of all, we've got, you know, three years of, of very weak sales and, you know, the attraction of, you know, the, the new EVs and, um, and also the, the autonomous features that will progressively come into cars over the next five years. Yeah. Um, can, can you pitch me one or two really high conviction ideas that are a good example of, of how you invest? And maybe, maybe not Ping An. Not Ping An, no, no, I talk about it. <laughs> so I'll go to uh, the first one is ZTO. ZTO is a Chinese company. Uh, it is the FedEx or UPS. It's the express parcel delivery uh, um, player in China. Been a very, very competitive market. You know, uh, five players were making up 60% of the market, lots of others. Um, you know, ZTO have progressively come out of this as the winner. They're the only or really one of two who've been profitable. Their costs are much better. Uh, you know, they've been taking huge share. Um, and, you know, their parcel delivery growth rate sort of, um, you know, 50, 40, 50% a year, uh, you know, in, in recent times. Um, you know, they very quickly surpassed, you know, FedEx and UPS. They deliver more parcels than those two combined. Uh, incredibly well-run company. Um, but the downside to this was, this was a brutally competitive market. Uh, the likes of Alibaba were helping fund everyone, you know, so helping fund the competition. So while their, their volumes were up 50%, let's say, the typical, you know, revenue growth was only 30. Now they were, you know, so they were marking time in their profits. Um, a couple of things have happened. Clearly, um, Alibaba have backed away from funding it, and it's part of that sort of competition regulation. The other thing that has happened, which we're seeing around the world, is that the way ZTO and others work is that the the guy who does the final pickup and delivery is an individual contractor, like a Uber or a food delivery guy. And in this squeeze of the industry, 
he's not getting paid. So they've instituted minimum rates there, and that's really made it very difficult for the competition. So we think this company's just at the crest of where profits are really going to pick up. Um, it's a very high quality business, and um, you know, I know all the obsession about value and growth. You know, we are not getting this on a P of seven. It's on you know a high twenties type multiple, but we think this can grow for very very many years uh, as what will be one of a small number, possibly two or three uh, very large express delivery companies in China. We've been there for a while. Been there for three four years. We've you know we have made some money. We've sort of doubled our money on the initial purchases, but. I just think this thing is set up for an extraordinary uh, run, uh, given the change in the pricing environment. Yeah, I hope it delivers for you, Andrew. Um, one more. Uh, one more. Um, well, let's go somewhere else. So um, take a trip, maybe Europe. Uh, I think uh, let's go to Japan. I think. Japan. Okay. Okay. So Mini Bear Mitsumi. So Mini Bear uh, Industrial Company started out and makes miniature ball bearings. Right. That's almost like a global monopoly in this. But, you know, their great expertise is producing vast volumes of very small components. Um, the company today is one of the great M&A stories where they are going around buying other really fine Japanese companies. Uh, for example, Mitsumi, which is they, they now have a uh, share the name with. Um, you know, they're known for the product being many of our hands because they created the backlight for the Apple phone. Okay. All right. Fantastic um, uh, product development at Mitsumi, but not very good in terms of cost of delivery. You know, Mitsumi, Miniband, known for their automation. So they've bought this company um, and then just made, you know, turned it around in terms of profitability. And they're now repeating this. There's this huge industrial, you know, uh, sector in Japan that makes great products, but it's not particularly profitable. So. This is a company that now has a very um, broad industrial base, you know, autos, phones, electronics. Um, they're in an awful lot of area areas. Um, so areas that have been a bit, you know, not that, that strong the industrial and auto side of it. Um, and, you know, it will grow, we think, both through uh, the organic part of its business and M&A mm -hmm. for a long time to come. Uh, you know, you can buy this on 15 times. And, you know, we've been there for a while again. Uh, but, you know, this is just, when I sort of talk about there are some great investment, you know, we uh, we don't have to go off buying tech stocks on 30 times revenue or even the big favourites on when they're on 35 times earnings because there are just very fine companies out there that are profitable and growing and you can buy at, at very attractive valuations. Yeah. Well, we've done a bit of a round the world on the stocks. We're getting to the final part of the interview, <laughs> which hopefully will be a bit of fun. Uh, but um, we've come out, we're talking about travel, we're talking yes. about traveling internationally. Um, what has been a domestic trip or a visit that was really memorable over the past few years? Where did you go? What did you love about it? Well, you know, we're, uh, my wife and I have had a sort of a long association with an organization called Australian Wildlife Conservancy. Uh, and I'm on the board these days and sorry, but what it does is it, you know, we buy or manage properties to protect uh, endangered Australian uh, species. And so, look, you know, the favourite thing we get to do each year is to go and visit some of the properties. And we managed uh, each year to sort of sneak one in before all the other trips got cancelled. So, you know, last year we went up to a property, uh, Bulo 
uh, river, it's a pastoral uh, station. And what's wonderful about it is you just get to go out. It's an amazing country. It's an amazing country. But also you've got all the AWC ecologists there, so we get to go and hang out with them. They're doing their work and they're catching little, you know, they're all excited. They've caught a, you know, they do trapping work for surveys and they've caught, you know, antichinus and, you know, you get to see this little thing that, yeah, very, very, very cool. And, and you know, even on the pastoral station, you get to visit and go around with the, the Bullo River people. There's a lot of history and, the, you know, a lot of fun. So um, we tend to do those sort of trips every year. Also did a great walking trip. I uh, love my bushwalking, as, as does Jane. And we uh, did the Three Capes trip. Many people have done it. But, you know, it's a magnificent... Where is it? Three Capes? Is that Tasmania? Uh, Tas that's Tasmania. Yeah. It's a three-day walk and it's as... You know, the last day is... A, a, Reasonably decent walk. Uh, the, the first two and a bit days are pretty cruisy, but, you know, stunning scenery. Yeah. Uh, definitely worth doing if you're a walker. Well, Andrew, thank you for talking us through how you think about investment markets today. It's great no, to catch up. Yeah, no, thanks, James. For all you viewers out there, I hope you enjoyed that chat with Andrew. Remember, we're putting fresh videos up on the LiveWire YouTube channel all the time, so subscribe, give us a like, and uh, leave a comment if you enjoyed it. Thanks very much for watching.